Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Ryan Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is an author, martial artist, and teacher who grew up in central Alberta, Canada, in a town called Dog Rumps Creek, just west of Edmonton. The first 10 years of his life were spent not training in any kind of martial arts, which led during primary school years to getting harassed and bullied quite a bit, and that all changed in 1986. Since the beginning of his martial arts journey, he studied and taught in China, Nepal, Taiwan, Thailand, the U.S., the U.K., Israel, and more. He's currently married to a wonderful woman who travels with him when he is out teaching workshops. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Neil Ripsky. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here, Brian. Hey, I appreciate your time, and it's, it's you know, an eight-hour time difference. Those are always tricky to to pull off with everything, but I'm glad we made it work. Yeah, me too. It's not the easiest thing to do. That's for sure. Definitely. So kind of how I like to start with, with all my guests. I mean, I talked a little bit about it in the intro, but I, I want to know where your martial arts journey began. Where, you know, where was that first spark? What kind of led to your first interest and, and kicked off that part of your life? Okay. Well, as you mentioned in the intro, I grew up in a place called Dog Rump Creek. And, you know, not everybody in Dog Grump Creek was real cool with each other at the time because it was the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So really where my martial arts kind of story really begins in a way is that I was bullied a lot as I was growing up before I was, you know, 10 years old and into my teen years as well. Where my parents and I lived, I ended up on the bus a lot. So that my, my bully was on my bus with me. So I was stuck with this guy an hour or two hours a day. And that's what really, you know, we'd, he'd get me in trouble at school and, and whatever. So when I was at the Roadrunner, which was the local arcade back in the day, uh, one day there was a poster there, Learn Self-Defense with the Art of Kung Fu. And I was just like, I need that. And it was the spark that changed everything in my life, quite literally now, looking back. I mean, it was the reason I got my very first job. I got my first paper because I had a Sifu I had to pay for classes. Nice. You know, and then all the martial arts on top of that, that thing. But it, it all started out with, with feeling fearful. And I had a right to feel fearful. I had some bullies. Yeah, definitely. So what um, did it take much to convince your parents to let you do that? Or were they just like, get a job and pay for it yourself and we're fine with it? Or was it more like, we, you know, we don't want you getting something involved with violence? I mean, how, how did that conversation with your parents go? Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> that was not the question I was expecting. Okay. It's <laughs> good. That's cool, dude. Well... Truth be told, it went real bad, oh, okay. <laughs> really, really badly. Okay. Yeah, it, it kind of, at first it was okay. Okay, and, you know, mom and dad were were into it. I was doing something. It was a sport, you know, all that sort of thing. But it only took. I wasn't a black belt yet. Yeah, I wasn't a black belt yet before my parents are having discussions with my teacher about um, Neil might have an obsessive compulsive disorder. That's what they started to think. Really? Yeah. Because I mean, it's what I did. It's, mm-hmm. I just, I just trained. And I mean, looking back, it's not entirely wrong. Like my family life was really difficult at home. I was in a lot of, uh, a lot of fear, a lot of times for different reasons. So because of that, it carried on into the bullying at school. And the the only place that I was getting that sort of um, like parental kind of, hey, thumbs up, everything's going to be okay, was my Sifu. So because of that, my dedication went kind of out the window. Like I went crazy with it. It was the place for me to be. So I would just train. I would train all the time. And uh, yeah, there was a point where my mom and dad were really getting concerned with it. And I can totally understand it. I look back at myself today and I fully remember like having that talk with myself, like, do I really need to go to math class and learn trigonometry or should I go do forms? And like forms were way more fun. And it, it really went to the point where I just, that was what I wanted for my future. It was the only thing that brought joy into my life okay. was being able to, 
to do this thing. So it went really bad with my parents. I uh, I ended up homeless at 14. Oh, wow. And I, I ended up, yeah, it went real bad with my parents. You know, and I love them, and I harbor no ill feelings towards them. I get it. They were young people. I was a young person once, mm-hmm. and I would have been a terrible kid. But... Yeah, I ended up uh, I ended up moving to Calgary, which is a city about three. It's like three and a half hours away from where I grew up, and uh, things went poorly there. So I ended up living under a bridge for a summer. Wow! And when I was when I was in that space, the only thing there was was my kung fu. Like that was it. It was the only thing that mattered. It was the only thing I could do, and it was keeping me safe. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, by the time that. By the time I was 15 and I was no longer in that situation, I had already used my martial arts. Wow. And I knew things that worked and things that didn't work. And I, I don't mean I was like in all these street fights or something, right? But I mean, I did get, I got into an altercation or two okay. and I learned a lot from it. And I got, you know, I learned a lot from it. But it was the only thing in my life that was stable okay. and made me feel safe. So... It just carried on. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, just, I just wanted to back up a little. That that very first school that you saw that poster you went in, first of all, which which style of Kung Fu was it? And think of those first couple classes. What was it about it that drew you in? I mean, you say you became almost obsessed with it. What was it about it that, that stands out that you're like, wow, I have to do this? It's funny. I have very vivid memories of my first school. It was uh, it was the, the Jing Wu, the World Jing Wu. Okay. It was one of the satellite schools in Canada, right? My teacher was a one of the members there. So... When I, I mean, I remember very little about the class in some ways. Mm-hmm. I just remember that every, I was there the first day you ever had a class. And I know this had to be part of it. Oh, wow. Is everyone in the room was equals. Mm-hmm. Because we, there were no black belts yet. He, this was his first school. So I got to see myself amongst all of these adults. And we were all peers. And one of the things he liked to do for teaching discipline and respect was everybody was referred to as Mr. or Miss, Yep. right? And that really struck me when I was 10. Mm-hmm. You know, life wasn't super great at home, and this guy was calling me Mr. I like that. Yeah. And that worked out really well for me because as my life went on, right, that, that instilled a lot of confidence in myself. But that first day, I vividly remember, I was there with my, two of my best friends, and I remember we did this crazy workout, and we were super tired, and... We went to bow at the, at the door. We were told to bow at the door. And I remember we looked back at my Sifu and I was like, I'm going to wear, I'm going to get a black belt from him. And my buddy standing next to me was like, yeah, would, yeah, sure you are. And I said, no, he's going to give me that one. And I couldn't tell you to this day why I said it. But five years later, when I got my black belt from him, he took his off to give to me. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Wow. I, and I didn't, I've never told him that or anything mm-hmm. as far as I remember. But it was it was a really big moment to me. It was like my it was my bar mitzvah, right? So were you his first? Like, now black belt? you're becoming someone. I was his first black belt. Yeah, okay. yeah. He sort of like that forged sense. himself on me. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so thinking back then to that that very first class, you said it was all beginners, all equals. Do you remember how many of them stuck with it? Oh yeah, vividly, absolutely. Okay, because it was none of them. None of them. Yeah, it was. It was nobody. Yeah. Wow. No, I was I was his first black belt. It took me. Uh, it was 91. It was five years. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I got it, that there was nobody in class that had started with me. Right. It was, I was already a generation or two out from that, if wow. you will. Right. Okay. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's impressive though. I mean, and, and that explains even more. I mean, you, not only were you his first black belt, you were the, obviously the one that showed the most dedication of all of his students that started. So, I mean, that makes sense that he gave you his black belt. I mean, that's completely understandable now. Yeah. It was really, really good of him. I really appreciated it. Absolutely. And yeah, that's what it was. My, my motivation back then is it's never changed really, but it's just been, I will not stop what I'm doing. If I, if I love this and I really want to be good at it, I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And other people had other things get in the way. That's all. So at that school, did you get involved in the teaching side of things at that point or did that come later? I mean, I, would te- I taught kids classes and things underneath him. Okay. Uh, but then <laughs> he and I had a little misunderstanding, okay. a little falling out. You know, as is, okay, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. <laughs> I, I was going to say, as is common in the world of martial arts. <laughs> I caught him uh, dating my girlfriend. Ooh. I found out later. Many years later, I had a person I told this story to, and he asked me how old my teacher was. 
And I didn't put it together that we were 16 and he was like 30. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, when I found out that this was happening and it wasn't just my girlfriend, we had a falling out and I took off. I, because to me, I had looked up to this father figure, oh, yeah. this, this mentor. He's my dad kind of thing, right? Like my Kung Fu dad. Mm-hmm. So then he can do that. So he, somehow my mind just crystallized on if he can teach you everything you should be able to be, he can also teach you everything you should not be. Yep. And I just looked at that as an example. And then I, that's when I left him. And that's how I ended up meeting Master Ma, actually. Okay. Was was after that? How did that happen? Was that did you just were you looking for a new school or did you happen upon it? How did that happen? I was well. I was out of my first teacher's school, mm-hmm. and not very long afterwards, I went to the movies because I believe it was Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, if I remember nice. right. Okay. I was show and I showed up late because there was just a kung fu demonstration opening night, and I missed it, and I was not impressed because I was trying to make it right by yep. a bus or whatever. Anyway, so there's these guys standing around in Kung Fu outfits, and I'm looking for a school. So they're giving out business cards, and the one school gave out a coupon. And hey, hey, free is free, baby. I don't care if it's a good class or not. I'm coming. So next thing I know, I take the bus to this cave in northern Edmonton. Uh, It's dark. It's dingy. It's down way too many stairs. (laughs) The whole place is carpet on concrete mm-hmm. and it's you know and it's kung fu school and to just 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 to tell you what kind of woke me up here the shaolin monks went on their first tour just before i met master ma okay and i it was the first time i ever saw real like shaolin monk kind of people do martial arts see their wushu right mm-hmm. so i was blown away and when i walked into ma's school that day one of the students was doing drunken and the only time I'd ever seen Drunken before was like last week at the Shaolin Monk demo. Okay. So I made this crazy, you know, kind of connection between the two. And uh, yeah, so I started training with him. I explained I had done Kung Fu before and all this other stuff. And he took me in as one of his students, luckily. How different was that and style from your first one? Night and day. Okay. Um, the Jing Wu stuff is, uh, the Jing Wu stuff I learned, let me preface that, mm-hmm. is tournament friendly. It's, it's good, clean fun. It's Kung Fu. It's what you see at a Kung Fu school. Master Ma was part of a family system taught by his father and so on and so forth, right? And the whole system is not meant for show. So it's not very pretty. Like, honestly, I'm known for my drunken. And I've never thought my drunken is good to look at. I like the way the Wushu guys move. Like Jackie Chan and stuff. Like, they're killers. Yep. I love watching that. You know? Um, but... Our Kung Fu was just sort of ugly, but it sort of became a, a, a level of pride for me in a way that, you know, ugly Kung Fu is generally good Kung Fu because <laughs> yeah. it's more about purpose than it is about show. Right. But that was kind of what it was like there. I mean, Master Master Ma really believed in exercise. Uh, the workouts were, to quote my Kung Fu brother, Shug, going through Master Ma's workouts was like going through Vietnam. Wow. And I don't disagree. He was um, He was a small guy. 120 pounds, soaking wet, probably 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, and uh, yeah, he's, I've never seen anybody hurt more people in my life. He had no regard for student safety. He had no real compassion if you found something too difficult. And as such, his school was populated by very few people. I saw a lot of people go through there in the years, but nobody stayed more than a couple classes. There was, And all of us that did, there was something wrong with us, I'm sure of it. To this day, we're all weirdos. But his kind of point of view on martial arts was that no matter how good you are, if you're not strong enough or fast enough, it's not going to work. So his workouts were just terrifying. Lots of like handstand push-ups and you're doing push-ups and you're getting kicked in the stomach and things that people do in MMA now. We, yeah. were, we were doing a lot of that. Sounds like the traditional and Taekwondo I mean, school I went to, so very familiar. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, it's like all like the iron techniques where you're whacking your shins and like all the kind of brutal stuff nobody would rather be doing. Nobody nice. would rather hit themselves in the shin, <laughs> theoretically, except the five of us. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, his training was... Uh, I mean, it was really cool. It was what I was craving, though, because it, I knew it was this. It was this sort of venomous snake. It was. It wasn't defanged like some other styles had been. Mm-hmm. You could tell that you know the uh, the stuff was meant to be used and not for anything else. And that really jived with me. I was a very angry young man. Uh, life hadn't been hard, real easy. You know, life had been pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And 
I ended up by this time, the only way I was making money was by bouncing. So I'm like Kung Fu fighter guy for a living, essentially. Yeah. You know, I go and go and get, you know, we would look, my buddy Lauren and I would joke about our job at the, at the bar was to get punched for $15 an hour. (laughs) Cause like, that's all you were was a punching bag really. Right. Mm -hmm. But then we would, we would get to practice our Kung Fu together, which was also nice that Lauren and I were doing that job together. Yeah. But it, that's, that's kind of how it was for a few years. And then um, I lost my job and was going to be in big trouble. So I went to class one night and told Sifu I couldn't make it. Like, you know, I can't make the payment. I lost my job. I'm probably going to lose my apartment. I'm going to have to do a thing. And he just said, well, why don't you stay with me? Wow. And I was excited but uncomfortable because he's, you know, intense. And uh, he, he cut me a deal. I taught all his kids classes and I got to go and live in his spare bedroom essentially and i lived with him for a few years okay so then then the training that's when i became a disciple was in there then there was a training in the class and training at home and the 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 training in the classes was like all the really hard workouts and all of that sort of stuff and then the training at home was pretty much all fighting stuff meaning we were doing different shaolin systems and their exercises for x y and z see what's interesting I'd like to mention actually about that mm-hmm. Ma style, which is really cool. Is it actually doesn't have very many forms. Okay. My brothers, when I joined, I'm the youngest brother. And when I joined, each of my Kung Fu brothers, of which I have five, all knew like one or two forms. And they'd been with them for years. And by the t- I asked them about that because like when I was trained at the Jing Wu, like that's how you got belts is you would learn a form and you would go on from that, right? So I'm like, how does this place operate? And forms were seen as... Something that was just like a book you kept stuff in. It's like a dusty thing that you, you might you might keep on your shelf in case you need it one day. But all the training was to be single techniques and combinations and sparring and stuff like that. So it was a very, compared to a lot of curriculums, I was brought up in a really weird one there. Because okay. all of the forms were sort of the last thing you learned in the style. Like when I was completing my training with Ma, um, that's when I started learning all the sets. Because it was the repository, right? So it's like you've learned tiger or snake or whatever you can fight with it you understand how it works now here's the form so that you can keep it all together and it's your job to pass it on because when you when you made your discipleship ceremony you, there was uh, one of the promises you made but that you'd replace yourself that's kind of cool that sounds like an amazing few years there so so for the people who don't maybe don't know a lot about kung fu don't understand kind of explain you know, explain the the kung fu brothers you know, how because how, you said you had five of them how how is like how is that in relation to you how are they in relation to the instructor and how, you know, how do you become a kung fu brother uh, okay so there's kind of no rank system in traditional kung fu mm-hmm. what it is is a familial system so the Sifu, Shifu, that word means literally like teacher or mentor and father kind of okay. put together. Okay. And then from there, all of his students become brothers and sisters because they're of that teacher. Right. Okay. So when you become, when you're a Kung Fu brother or a Kung Fu sister to somebody, that's all by age as according to how long you've been training. Okay. So I'm the youngest brother because I started training with Master Ma last of the other people that actually put up with him, right? <laughs> Which, yeah. So I was kind of the last the last one in the door, they would say. See, in, in Chinese Kung Fu, there's a ton of secrecy, and it's all based on this familial lineage. Anybody who's been longer is an older brother or an older sister. Okay. Anybody who's there, you know, other than that is in a younger brother or a younger sister. Then there's the Tudai, or the Todi. And what that means is those are true students, those are disciples, in the door kind of people. And to become that disciple in Chinese Kung Fu, your teacher has to trust you, really trust you. Because what it is, is it's an adoption ceremony. So even if you're not of my family, you are now. Okay. So they, this is where a lot of the uh, esoteric kind of mal- malarkey at times comes from, but of teachers telling you, you know, stand in a horse stance for this long and three days in the snow and whatever. But it's, it's because they're testing a person's resolve. The metaphor is, can I trust you? And will you pass it on? Because teaching somebody at high level is a huge investment of time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've noticed it as I'm growing older that I have a whole lot less time on my hands to invest in people. I would much rather have good students than many students. Right. So with um, the discipleship, when you are allowed to disciple, you ask, for your, you ask your Kung Fu brother to ask your teacher if you can disciple. That way, if he refuses, there's no awkward pause between the two of you. It comes back down the line. And then you're, you'd be told, like, oh, you could try again in a year or something like that. And if you go through with it, then 
the teacher and you have a talk about what the vows are. So in order to become an indoor student or a disciple like this, you end up taking an oath to do different things. And every teacher is different. The lineages are all different. Part of mine was that I had to replace myself. I mentioned that earlier. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, you have to take somebody else to your level once, at least in your life, so the style survives. Another one of them was to finish my training, right? Because at the time when I was a disciple, when I was a disciple, I wasn't a master yet. So I had to promise to finish my training and promise to replace myself and then represent the style with dignity and respect and protect the weak. Okay. That was, that was my vows. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And it's, it's just, and then he based a, uh, he had a belt kind of system that he built later on, mm-hmm. like right, right after I joined and stuff because it worked better for the business, but that's the traditional method that he was using the whole time. Okay. And then how long did you stay then? with him at that school before you went to another style and more, more traditional training. Yeah, no problem. So, uh, yeah, let me think. It was about 99. It's probably four ish years. I was with living with him Okay, and, uh, somewhere in there anyway. Yeah. About four years I lived with him. And then I had uh, the luxury when I was becoming a teacher of taking a student on in the school. So what this meant was I was allowed to teach somebody. They were my student, but they were going to attend classes with my teacher as well. Okay. Right? So this was my teaching test because he gave me a whole second kind of education about how to teach people as opposed to how to be taught to do martial arts. So while I'm doing this education, I have this student, Mike, and Mike is my guy. So Mike and I are rocking it. We're kicking it as hard as we can because I'm trying to impress my teacher and he knows I'm trying to impress my teacher. Right? So we're really going. So at the time, one of my friends had a martial arts club I had the keys to, and uh, we decided to go over there on a Friday night, opened it up, and my teacher was uh, sleeping with my friend's girlfriend. Oh, jeez. So wow. it, I had a little falling out with him, and, you know, it was not cool because it was a repeat in my life. Yeah. And But at the same time, he had been a great example of how not to be the whole time, yeah. right? Like, he was pretty brutal. Like, I mean, he broke two of my fingers and all, Yeah. Messed up Shug's ankle, all sorts of stuff. Wasn't a good guy. Don't Please don't get the impression he was a great man. Yeah. He was a good fighter. He was the best fighter I've ever seen. Okay. Yeah. So that didn't, that didn't jive with me, man. So I had to leave. And a few months later, he was in a car accident. And that was the end of Master Ma. Okay. So what happened after that was then Shug and I and all the brothers got together and we made sure we had everything. And I was the kind of young buck... That was going to keep doing it, right? Because mm-hmm. I said I'm the youngest guy. So everybody made sure that I had a, the whole system checked out. You know, Dominic was the snake guy. So make sure I have all the Dominic snake, not just Shug snake. I wanted Dominic snake, right? And we did that. And so then I ended up becoming the guy that was going to teach it. And that's how I started my club, Red Jade Martial Arts. Okay. So what, what year that. did you start Red Jade? November of 1999 Wow, was so when I started. 20. 24 years. That's impressive. Yes. I'm very old. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, is that's how that began. Yeah. And then I started, uh, I started teaching for myself professionally mm-hmm. and then I kept looking for a teacher and that's when I got really lucky and I met, uh, I met a couple of great teachers. I met Sifu Chen, Chen Qiming. He was the teacher who taught me the Shaolin 18 Lohan Palm. He just passed away this last year. I knew him uh, 2003, he moved to Canada from China. Yeah. Okay. So tw- 20 years we were wow. together, which was, he was amazing. He was my Yoda. He was the, cool. the Kung Fu teacher I always wanted to have. He was like, I started Kung Fu right after Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. I saw Karate Kid. I wanted my Mr. Miyagi, damn it. And it <laughs> took me that long to find him. Yep. But there he was. He was, he was a, a professor a Chinese medicine, a doctor of Chinese medicine, a master herbalist. He had an imperial title, which kind of blows my mind. I don't know how he got that from the Chinese government, but I saw it. So that's weird. Yeah. Doctor of a thousand years. It was called like this, this thing. Yeah. And his story, I mean, my story, his story, he met a, uh, he's like 19 years old. He's just become a doctor. Okay. He's just kind of finished school. And, uh, at the time, interestingly enough, uh, he was training at Po Chi Lam with Wang Fei Hong's Kung Fu school in Guangzhou, the famous like Robin Hood of China. Mm-hmm. Anyway, on his way home from the clinic, he, he ran across a monk and a few of this guy's followers. And the monk was really ill, a Buddhist monk, Tibetan monk. Uh, 
So he helps this monk go back to the clinic and starts treating him, right? Helps him out for a couple of days and the monk recovers. So he offers Sifu Chen some money. He says, I've got some traveling money. Let me pay you for your services. You're a doctor. Sifu Chen's Buddhist. He's like, no, no, no. You're a monk. This is good merit. We're all good. So the monk took it as a sign that he was supposed to stay in that city because he was a monk traveling from Tibet into China to go do Dharma combat, which is when Buddhist monks will, especially the Tibetans, will travel from monastery to monastery to debate with their brothers, to be like, I have this idea about this. What do you think? So he'd been traveling around and he took it as a sign that he should stay there at that monastery. So the monk decided that was the deal and Sifu Chen then took that as a sign like I'm probably supposed to study with this monk and so he started studying with him and he passed him this system that he called the Shaolin 18 Lohan Palm which is a uh, in a nutshell it's Chinese yoga it's like pre kung fu kung fu wow like it's actually a it's actually a health system for instance, I'm sure you know the, the legend of the Shaolin Temple, mm-hmm. that originally the guy who showed up there wasn't teaching martial arts. What he did was he meditated in the cave, had a good idea of how to help these guys so that they could become physically and mentally healthy enough to practice their meditation. Taught them some exercises, three famous ones, right? The muscle tendon change, the bone marrow washing method, and the Shaolin 18 Lohan Palm. Yep. Those three things were supposed to be what progenerated Kung Fu later on. So Sifu Chen got that from this guy. And uh, then when I met him in Canada, I met him through one of my Kung Fu brothers, Daniel, and he went to him as a doctor. And he goes to this doctor, right? And the doctor sees the bruises on Daniel's arms, which are all my fault. And he's like, oh, what's that about? He says, oh, I practice Kung Fu. Oh, really? There's Kung Fu in Canada? Huh, no kidding. So... He starts telling Daniel about, oh, I practiced Shaolin 18 Lohan Palm. Do you ever do any martial arts? And like, he's this Kung Fu master, this 60-year-old Chinese guy. So uh, as soon as the appointment ends, Daniel brings me up. He's like, Neil, you got to meet this guy. This is your Yoda. I know it is. And he was right. So he took me to class. He had a, uh, a prescribed Qigong class for his patients on Sundays. And I showed up there and then was expected to do a demonstration, which I was unbeknownst to me. And... Then he accepted me as a student. He says, I'll never forget it. He asked me to do some Kung Fu. I did a couple of forms. He says, okay. And I'm like, what do you think? And he didn't speak a lot of English then. He looks at me. Outside Kung Fu is okay. Inside Kung Fu, not okay. I fix. I fix. I fix. Cool, man. I'm in. And uh, he was the greatest. He was the greatest. That's awesome. He would let me... uh, he let me come over to the medical center after I finished my club because I'd close my class at 9 p.m. And he closed his medicine shop at 9. So then we would go up for kanji at like 9.30 and then go train. And we did that for years and years and years in, uh, in Edmonton when I was living there. Yeah, and then when I started teaching more broadly and I moved, uh, I started teaching his Lohan Pong. So I would then pilgrimage students back to meet him and be tested by him and looked at. And it was, yeah, it was the greatest martial arts relationship I've had as far as seeing to me what wudu means, right? This yeah. this man did nothing but good for everybody in his life, his whole life, and just lovingly passed on everything he had. I mean, it was yeah, That's it was cool. beautiful. I'm glad I got to experience that. Awesome. But yeah, sadly he's gone now. That's too bad. So when did the um, traveling become? I mean, obviously that's something that's a huge part of your life now is traveling. So when did that, when did that start? Hmm. Well, I, I sort of was shooting at it. I was planning to do this okay. in a way. I had a few teachers that I had experienced that did things like retreats once a year. And mm-hmm. they, they started traveling and things like that. And then I realized, you know, you look at the magazines and such. Some people do it. So what I had kind of decided was that I would actually close my brick and mortar school. That was the big thing. Okay. So I was, uh, when I was living, I was living in British Columbia and I had a group of students. I had a nice full-time summer intensive session and I had a really big group, group of students for the summer. And, um, when I, wow, we had somebody commit suicide at the end of the class. Oh wow! And, and it was, uh, somebody really close to me. One of my, it was my top disciple. So it was, uh, it was very difficult. 
And I, I was already planning this trip. We had a trip planned to go to Nepal. I was, we were going to volunteer after the earthquake. And I was going to teach a martial arts class and all this stuff. And the plan was that uh, we would be doing that one way or the other anyway. So, yeah, after that happened, I actually just decided to close the brick and mortar. I decided not to come back. Because it was the small town, the same faces. It was the whole thing. So uh, instead, yeah, I decided to take that as my springboard. So I took my group of students, we went to China, we went to Nepal, we went to Thailand, we went to Taiwan, did a bunch of training, met a bunch of guys, got into some trouble, and uh, then after the students went kind of on with their lives, went home and, you know, went into university and whatever, because they were young people, I just started to do it after that. I decided that would be my, my home, that my home would be building a ship rather than a house. Okay. So I just started kind of doing that. So the last 10 plus years now what i've been doing is traveling to different places in the world volunteering making contacts doing some workshops and then when my visa is up i'll move on and uh, it's been great it's been really great like right now i'm speaking to you from jerusalem um this is my like eighth trip here wow that's just crazy that's what a what a life so do you actually have a physical house that you go back to or you pretty much live on the road now i do not i am actually a nomad wow That's really cool. Yeah, my wife, my wife is even on board. We, we're, we're down to two backpacks. Wow. She's crazy, obviously. <laughs> so is there any place you haven't traveled to yet that you still want to? I mean, the list is growing smaller. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, before we started talking, I was looking at Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Okay. It's on my bucket list. And then, yeah, that's one of the bucket list places that hasn't been touched yet. Yeah, that's one of them. There's not many. There's not many left. Okay. I've been... Uh, I'm in a different place now. I'm in a different spot in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of thinking about, I'm circling the idea of having a house again. Oh, okay. Because it's, it's been, um, it's got to be close to 15 years I've been traveling now. Wow. Maybe, maybe, maybe not, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot, of, it's a lot of years, quite a few years since I've had a house. Yeah. And that is something that sort of wears on you, right? Like any, any touring person, band, whatever will tell you, you can only sort of do that for so long. Right. So, um, yeah, we're kind of circling looking for a home there's nowhere nowhere on the horizon quite yet okay we're still having fun but i see it i see it happening maybe it's going to be in asia i mean we're hoping for europe maybe okay but we'll see for me it's all about the students and the people to be honest that's why i've been here eight times yeah because i love the people i have great students and great friends here and when did the online classes start oh uh, i started teaching online quite a while ago i had a website probably in about 2010 where i kind of cut my teeth with it now the kind of latest rendition of it really started with COVID. I mean, as soon as, as soon as that hit, that luckily for me, I already had gotten rid of my brick and mortar martial arts school because mm-hmm. some of our peers did not, and they lost them, right? Um, so I was lucky that way, and I already had a bit of an online presence, so I started really focusing it on during during COVID, and now it, I can do it hand in hand, right? I I still do private lessons online, like through Skype. And I run a pa- three different Patreons for different styles, that sort of thing. And then, you know, wherever I am locally, I'm teaching workshops and doing classes. So like here, I'm doing a, a three workshop series in June next month in Jerusalem. Well, in Israel, all over okay. the country. Wow. That's, that's, the, that's the thing. And then okay. when I'm not busy, I write. Okay. So then think back <laughs> to that very first school you were teaching kids classes to now. What do you think has changed the most about your teaching style over the years? Oh, wow. The very quick and easy answer mm-hmm. is th- they're completely different things. Okay. When I was a kid, I, th- I thought I was teaching punches and kicks. I had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, now I see martial arts as self-evolution, self-directed evolution. It has every capacity within it to test your mettle and see how you interact with the world and interact with other people and see how you interact with the different parts of yourself. So when I'm teaching now, what I'm looking at really is trying to help someone evolve. They're in my class because they're trying to evolve somehow. If it's that they want to lose weight, that's still an evolution. And if they're trying to attain enlightenment, that's an evolution too. But it's all going to start with, this is a horse stance. Your mind and your body shouldn't be in two different places. Welcome to your legs. Nice. You had mentioned writing. So when when did the, you know, you've written a lot of books. When did the first idea, you know, when did you first get involved and interested in writing? Well, when I was young, there was no internet, mm-hmm. as some of you may remember. <laughs> so the only access outside of class to any Kung Fu related stuff was magazines 
right? And maybe a book you could find in the library or the bookstore. So as I grew up and I started to, you know, get a job and things like that, I had an agreement with myself that I would buy a martial arts book every paycheck. That way I could learn anything from anywhere. Like I'm building my own internet, right? And I, I remember when I was in my 20s, it was like a ritual at that point. You know, it's like, oh, the paycheck, oh, the bookstore. What is it? What is it? Do I like this one? Do I like this one? And uh, I pulled some book out and I, I remember looking at it and going, why is nothing drawing me right now? It's been like this for months. What? I could have wrote this book. <laughs> oh, I could have wrote this book. And that's literally, so I bought that book. I can't remember what it is right now, but I bought that book to take home to look at it because I knew I could write it. Wow. And it, it was the thing that gave me the confidence to write a book, the very my very first book, right? And I just, yeah, sat down and tried it out and it seemed to have worked. People bought it. I sold it on eBay at first. I used to print copies at Staples and then mail them to people. Wow. And I advertised them on eBay. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a crazy thought that's now, awesome. right? <laughs> And you've written, if if my math is right, counting, is it 22 books you've written? Yeah. Yeah. There's tw- I think there's 22 on there. Okay. My very first book I ever wrote actually is not on there. Oh, it's not. Okay. No, it never got published. I lost the, I lost the laptop it was on. Uh, so if any, if anybody has the book, uh, Tang Long Hidden Hand, Secrets of Praying Mantis Boxing, okay. then it's a, it's a very rare book because wow. I don't even have it and I wrote it. So, we should, so if anyone has it, they should scan it to you, send you a copy so you can uh, yes. republish it. <laughs> See, there we go. Send it to me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that is cool. That's that's awesome. So, I mean, it's, it's your first one. But yeah, basically, I, I can't shut up. I know. It, that's what it's like when I'm writing. What year was the first book? Because the first one on here is 2009. Oh. This is right around there, a little before. It was, it was before that. Okay. 2009 would be the first one. So, yeah, probably like two years before that. Okay. 2007, 2006, something in there. Yeah, that would be about right. Nice. Yeah, I don't, the book thing, it was, that was what it was. I saw, I saw that I could write as well as these guys were. I had, I had as much info was yeah. what I thought. And um, since then, and I've been traveling and everywhere I go, I don't just teach. I try to find teachers. I've accrued a lot of information in the last 30-something years. Mm-hmm. So... What I notice is that uh, now I want to write books just quite simply because I feel like I've gathered some stuff people don't have written down. Okay. I mean, I was very lucky with Sifu Chen and, and the Sheldon Lohan poem, yet mm-hmm. he never wrote a book on it. Yeah. So, like, I'm it now. I'm the sucker who's got to do something. I'm, he named me his lineage holder, and that stinks because there's responsibilities involved there. Yep. So I want to help preserve that style, right? So... Uh, I just feel like the best thing any martial artist can do is write a book. Like if when we're learning, we should be journaling the whole time. Mm-hmm. And anytime that you have something that's going on, especially if you feel like it's a, a real breakthrough and evolutionary thought, why not share it with everybody else? Because we're all into this. We're all in this together. We're all in the same hobby. I, I don't see differences between styles and places, countries, any of that stuff. Right. We all like martial arts. It's a hobby we're all into. Let's just help each other. It's a great way to look at it. So you mentioned that you, you don't really see a difference in style. So you primarily your whole life have studied Chinese systems, Chinese styles. Have you ever thought of others? Have you ever thought of you know, do, trying you know, a Japanese style, a Korean style? Have you ever ever looked into that or any, done any training in anything other than Chinese styles? Well, for a very long time, I purposefully avoided all other countries. Okay. I'll be honest with you. Because I thought, I remember when I started to understand what the poetry was. When I started to realize that, um, for instance, the horse stance, as people call it in English, it doesn't say that in Chinese. The, the words ma, bu, don't mean that. Ma is horse, certainly. But bu is actually more of the implication of about to step than it is about standing still. So it's the horse step, not the horse stance. And as soon as we put it in English, the, the poetry changes. And if we're standing, we're not in motion. And if we're stepping, we're about to be in motion. And that integral change that that takes place in your mind because of that changes your body and gives you this innervated, ready-to-move feeling. Much like a horse who may have to flee from prey. Mm, that, to me, made a big difference. Okay. So I started to look at that and I thought, if I start training in other countries' martial arts, I might not ever, I might get really confused. 
because I'm going to have to learn one set of myths mm-hmm. and one set of religions and like all of this stuff for this to make sense. So I was like really cognizant about it. It was when I was with Master Ma that I was like, I'm only going to cha- ever train Chinese martial arts. However, when I was living in British Columbia, I got the greatest gift I could have in a way. And a Japanese swordsman moved to my town. So uh, Daniel Kempling, he's a high-ranking Aikikai Aikido guy, one of Chiba Sensei's students. And uh, he's known as like the swordsman in their organization. And he moved to town. He emails me. He's like, hey, you're a martial artist in that town. I'm a martial artist and I'm moving to that town. So we helped him move. I got the whole school together and we helped him move. And we became friends, and I got to train alongside him and, and one of my friends, Jason, for years and years. So I can't say that I didn't try Japanese martial arts. Okay. But I will say that when I tried it, I was definitely the Chinese guy in the room. <laughs> like I, I, you know, I was I was the fish out of water in yeah. many many ways. But when we did uh, we did the uh, Ayajitsu, that's what it was called, mm-hmm. the Ayajitsu training. The sword, draw, sword drawing, in case you don't speak Japanese like me. Yeah, right. Um, the, the coolest thing I thought was how meditative it was. I really loved going to that class with Daniel because um, doing it on your own was one thing, but having a room of you do that and have that hit that meditative zone all at the same time in motion, it's just magical. And you can't, I've never seen it in a Chinese school. They're too complicated and messy and there's too many customs going on. There's never that cleanliness that the Zen gives. It's really nice. Really nice. That's really cool. Uh, one thing I wanted uh, to ask about, because this is, this is the first reason I actually heard about you, which is you know not a good reason, but I had read the story about your weapons being stolen. Can you just talk a little bit about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I moved back to that town in British Columbia, the one I said I would, wouldn't go back to. Mm-hmm. And I left my brick-and-mortar school and, well, decided, okay, I'm going to give that place another try. And uh, we moved back there, and there was basically a crime spree going on that we didn't know about. And somebody saw me moving my collection into my new dojo right as I was building it. I was I just, just finished painting and renovating, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a few students helping me. and But I, has, I hadn't opened to the public yet. And we decorated it. So it was like the night I decorated the dojo and I put everything up. Through, through the lock on the door, nobody knows the wiser, right? Mm-hmm. That night, place was somebody had seen me take them in, I think. So yeah, I had my whole life savings essentially in there. I had all of these ancient swords that uh, I had collected throughout my travels. I actually named my school Red Jade after a two-handed Chinese antique sword that I had that wow. was in there that night. Yeah, so I mean, to, the, the, the police asked me to, to make a, a list and all that kind of stuff, and it, it was tens of thousands of dollars. But uh, they've done their best. I've tried to help them. Mm-hmm. But honestly, the last cop I talked to said that he thinks they're at the bottom of the river because the whole martial arts world reached out to me. Yeah. And I was so thankful. And it was amazing because everybody around me was looking for them was watching for them. Mm-hmm. like, And to the point that that's what the police were, they were like, they can't sell them. There's no way that they're getting sold. They're sitting in a river or something, yeah. wow. which is a bummer. Yeah. You know, but uh, it was the hardest lesson about impermanence. That's yeah. for sure. It was a tough one. Not the hardest. It was a hard one. It was a hard one. But, you know, also now I don't have the burden of having to have that all of that stuff stored and everything else while I'm traveling and paying rent there and it's made my life easier and freer. So do you have a favorite weapon just personally to train with? Well, yeah. I mean, my favorite thing is uh, I've done a lot of straight sword. That okay. was, that was um, purposely because it was told to me that it was the most difficult weapon. It was the one that refined you the most. So, yeah, that was the, the worst thing to lose was my straight sword. But that's definitely the one. It's considered the queen of the martial arts weapons in China. Okay. It's the most graceful yeah, Very cool. and I'm not, you know, a slender, graceful guy, so I got to work on that. <laughs> That's good, though. So what, now you've, you've trained at multiple schools, you've run your own school, you do the online school type thing. What advice, what are one or two tips you would give someone who's looking to get involved in martial arts for the first time in their life? They've never done it, they know nothing about it, and they're just wondering, you know, hey, what, what should I look for in a school, and maybe what should I avoid in a school? My first tip is look at the people in the school. Make sure you are seeing a group of people you don't want, you know, you don't have a problems hanging around with. These are people that you can get along with, you could go out with after work, you could become friends with. Mm-hmm. If you walk into the gym and all of the guys in there are giving you the testosterone look, 
maybe it's not the place for you unless that's your thing. Right. But if you're looking for what all he's saying is you need to find a place you're going to fit in. If you're not going to fit in, that's not the school for you, period. That's got to be the first quality. Yep. Uh, and I don't think any other quality matters because you could be with the best master in the whole wide world. And if you don't get along, you're not going to learn anything. Very true. So now you've primarily traditional martial arts your whole life. What are your thoughts on, on something like MMA and the UFC? And is that something you're a fan of? <laughs> I am not a fan. Okay. No, I, I, am, I am not a fan, we'll say. I am a big fan of the idea and not a fan of what happened. Okay. If you will. Um, the idea of, of having a yeah having a having a style versus style competition that's intriguing mm -hmm. the idea is intriguing getting your brother to run the whole thing so that he can buy opponents that he <laughs> can kick the crap out of yeah not cool and yeah if you hear this i'm calling you out because mm -hmm. it's ridiculous right i mean the real thing would be cool like a real platform fight rock and roll i would love to see high level boxers and thai boxers and kickboxers and jujitsu and brazilian jujitsu and kung fu guys actually work with each other mm -hmm. because the stylistic differences would be art what i see happened in mma is it's no longer mixed martial arts it's a style called mma mm -hmm. that everybody trains in and they're yeah. all doing the same style the whole point is gone now in my mind they created a new sport cool but it's not the sport they said they were creating I agree. I, I used to be a diehard fan. You know, I actually used to judge it. I probably haven't sat down and watched an, a full MMA event in probably seven, eight years. But I always, mm -hmm. you know, the original, like, 10, even though, yeah, I know it was set up so Hoist would win, but the original 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 UFCs were awesome when it was style versus yeah. style. It, it, yeah, it, that, that was, that was intriguing cool. to watch. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. It's just that it started to amalgamate, right? Yeah. Everybody, everybody went to the middle instead of you know pursuing the extremes to see what might happen and that's cool i mean i am constantly shocked though when i hear things like oh my god he did a flying front kick and it worked <laughs> things yeah. like that just blow my mind like have you ever met a karate guy yep. once like come on yeah. anyway no i agree no, with that, not a big so. fan but a big fan of the idea i think if it was done right if somebody really did it right that'd be really cool yeah but i don't see how that would happen Cool. All right. So I know, you know, within Chinese martial arts, a huge part of that is philosophy. Is there one philosophy you've learned in all your years in martial arts that rises to the top? It's right at there at the top of your list. You, you keep coming back to it. You still teach it to your own students. <laughs> uh, there's lots of them. <laughs> I guess the, at the very beginning, well, no, not even at the very beginning, the alpha and the omega. Mm hmm Overall, it comes down to understanding relationships. Okay. All martial arts to me is about is relationships. It's a study of that. So some people might call that yin-yang, which is okay. But the reason I'm using the word relationships is because of this very misunderstood word, chi, ki in Japanese. Mm -hmm. And chi, if you look at it, it gets translated as energy all the time. Yes. But the character itself is a fire with a pot of rice or millet boiling above it, right? So you got life. That's what this is representing, is, is life, in a way. Now, when they say chi, they're referring to the energy that lifts the lid of the pot from the steam. Cool. But that's still a narrow definition. It's not just energy. It's the relationships that created the energy. So if you expand the definition like that, I expand it all the way to martial arts. Everything's about relationships. There's ways to have good, healthy, powerful relationships and ways to not do that. So, I mean, a very high-level martial artist who has very excellent relationships will never get in a fight. It won't happen. It has to be a complete misnomer. It'd be incredible for it to take place. Because right. they don't walk in the wrong places. They don't say the wrong things, right? And even in a violent conflict, it's the same way. There's all of these choices that are good and healthy, or they're not. For instance, choosing fear or calmness. People come to martial arts classes because they are usually because of fear. If they're good for self-defense, they have a fear of something. Mm -hmm. And a healthy fear, and that's not a bad thing, and that's life. But what's the first thing you try to teach somebody when they're very afraid? It's how not to be afraid. You bring them strength so that they can bring calm to their lives. You bring balance between relationships. So I would say that is always what it is, is what is the relationship I'm studying now? If it's a punch, is it the fist moving out or is it the fist moving back? Is it that relationship? Or is it the hip moving forward and the other hip moving back? Or the foot pushing down to the ground and my head pushing the sky. Which one am I paying attention to? And if I don't know, then I should be asking my teacher, hey, what relationship am I working on? And if you, I, this is how I train myself. If I know those answers over and over and over, I can use 
strategies to correct myself all of the time. And that's a great way to look at anything. Yeah. In my opinion. I love that answer. All right. I have some fun questions to wrap it up. So this one, Mm. and like I said, you've, you've primarily studied Chinese systems, but this can be, this is completely up to you. You're three, four, five, doesn't have to be four. I've had it as few as two and as many as eight. So three, four, five names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts. The Mount Rushmore of martial arts. Mm -hmm. Oh, do they have to be names people know? No, no. As long as you know them, it's your personal, your personal Mount Rushmore. I dig that. Sifu Chen, he's number one. Nice. Sifu Chen, he goes, he's number one. Carve the whole mountain into him, that's fine. Okay. Oh, my other teacher, George. Okay. George Shu gets on that same mountain for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other than that, I would go into famous martial artists. Okay. Chen Fakou, the greatest like living exponent of Tai Chi, kind of to ever live. Okay. Bong Hai Chuan, the guy who created... Bagua, he'd be cool to hang out with. Nice. Ji Longfeng, guy who created Xingyi Lioha, he'd be really cool to hang out with, if very dangerous to hang around with, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe, you know, Yu Fei, the great Chinese general who everybody attributes everything to. He made every martial art as far as most people are concerned. Mm-hmm. So it'd be cool to hang out with that guy, maybe, and ask him what's really going on and not going on. Ah, no, he doesn't make the mountain, though. He's too ambiguous. I think there's those other ones. That's good. Though. I mean, that's a pretty good, um, pretty good Mount Rushmore there. <laughs> All right, this one. Now you can't pick one of your own favorite martial arts book. And you said you used to buy a book every paycheck, so I'm, I'm guessing you probably oh, have yeah. some good ones. Oh yeah! Wow, it's hard to pick number one though. And most people pick more than one. Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> good, good. The first one that pops to mind. Let's see. Favorite martial arts books. Okay, there's this book about Chen Tai Chi trying to remember what it's called. Chen Family Tai Chi Chuan is all it's called. Okay. It's the original book that was passed down through the Chen family. A uh, guy, I believe in Russia, about 10 years ago or something, translated it into English. And it's amazing. It's the oldest Tai Chi kind of information there is. Really cool. Really cool book. Other one that jumps to mind is the Bagua book written by Liang Shouyu and Yang Zhengming. Okay. That's a good book to read if you've ever been interested in that stuff. Nice. Favorite book for young people mm-hmm. is called The Five Ancestors, Tales of the Five Ancestors. Oh, okay. And it goes through the legend of the Shaolin Temple being burned and these five kids escape and their kung fu saves the day, which is awesome. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, it's, that's a good book. I don't know. How's that? That's good. Hey, that's three. Like I said, the whole reason I started asking that question was so I could add more books to my library. So oh, <laughs> I'm always, always yeah. looking for ideas and trying to add books and stuff. So, yeah. It's a hard question to answer because there's so many. I've read a lot of them. So it's kind of. That's good. The though. standouts are hard to find. Yeah, it's all by the author, I think. The thing is, I, since I started the podcast, I've bought in a lot of new books, but haven't read any. I used to read a book a week. And when I started <laughs> yeah. the podcast, I, I told you before we started recording, I, I no free time. And I've, I've probably mm-hmm. read like three books in the last two years now versus a book a week. So I, I, I need to yeah. find a time to start <laughs> reading again because I do miss reading. Yeah, fair enough. No, I get what you're saying. Absolutely. Okay. Now, this next question, I'm, I'm really curious because you said you saw that mm-hmm. first poster you know, when you were in an arcade. So how about a favorite martial arts video game? Oh, Kung Fu. Obviously, <laughs> Kung Fu Master. The yeah. side scroller where all you had was punch and kick. Yeah. I spent a lot of quarters on that one. And nice. Double Dragon. That was oh, the other one. Double Dragon. Yeah, you remember Double Dragon. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. the movie was horrible. We, we the video play game was cool. <laughs> yeah. That's no good. Yeah, yeah. No, I love many, many a quarter was spent on Double Dragon. All right. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? TV show? Yeah. Oh, I don't watch a lot of TV. Okay. Let's see. Hmm. I'm not sure I know any martial arts TV shows, to be were, honest. Were you a fan of Kung Fu or after learning it, not no. really? Okay. No. Okay. I kind of figured. No. <laughs> Not a fan of Kung Fu, not a fan of Kung Fu, the legend continues. See, I know okay. those ones because I don't like them. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I actually like the legend continues. I don't know why, but I did. <laughs> I mean, it's great because you're watching it ironically. Yeah. <laughs> That's the difference, yeah, though, is when you're probably. watching it and you're like, uh, yeah, okay, well, now I get it. You're not, you know, you're not taking it seriously. That's a different thing for sure. It's hard to pick. I mean, it it's, is hard. It's to different pick. for you than me because you, you is hard because you don't watch much. I'm, I'm. It's hard for me because I watch so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. TV shows. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I haven't watched that many martial arts TV shows. Are you a fan of them, uh, Highlander? Did you watch Into the Badlands? Oh. Any of those shows? No, I never watched the TV, but I remember the movie Highlander. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I remember that one. No, I never watched Into the Badlands. I had a friend tell me about that one, okay. but I never saw that one. How about the new one, Warrior? No, I, you just told me about it. Yeah. No, I literally don't watch like TV, basically. You might enjoy Warrior. It's actually, it's based on the notes of Bruce Lee. Shannon Lee helped oh, bring, really? bring it to life. And it's supposed to be what Kung Fu was supposed to be when Bruce Lee was involved. Oh, really? That, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. That's a cool idea because that's why I didn't like Kung Fu because they <laughs> totally ripped it off Bruce Lee. Exactly. exactly. So you might you might check that's out cool. Warrior. You might get a kick out of it. Okay. Oh, I'll have to look at that. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Did you ever watch in the 80s? Did you ever watch that uh, TV series Sidekicks with Ernie Reyes Jr.? Oh, I totally forgot about that show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ernie Reyes Jr., man. Yep. Yeah, he was in Ninja Turtles. Yes, There's he was. Yep. Ninja Turtles. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, can't come up with a TV show. What about a favorite martial arts movie? My favorite martial arts movie is, what's it, what's it called? Is it Hero? Oh, the Jet Li. Fearless. It's fearless. Yeah. 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 Well, this, the story of Hui Yunja, the yes. guy who created the Jing Wu. That's my favorite martial arts movie. I okay. think that movie was the best done as far as actually showcasing both sides of the world. Yeah. Because it's not just like the old campy stuff where you're just fighting everybody and nobody dies. And it's not the super gr- brutal kind of stuff you're starting to see today where people are, you know, being cut into pieces and all that sort of stuff. Right. It's got a real story in it about regret and about use of power and overuse of power and bringing people together and yet he's a badass the whole time like it's just it's a really good hero to look up to and it's a true story yeah which makes it even cooler right that is true that's a great movie okay how about this one then this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie just overall a favorite movie fight scene a favorite fight scene yep oh well my one of my very favorite fight scenes is at the end of drunken master 2 Okay. Jackie Chan yep. fighting his bodyguard nice. in the uh, train stance where they uh, where Jackie almost goes blind for real because he's drinking industrial alcohol mm-hmm. to do his drunken boxing and he falls in the coals and does the stunt where he gets lit on fire. That's a great scene. That's cool. Really, really great scene. And you get to see his bodyguard. I can't remember his name. But his bodyguard is a Taekwondo guy, as I recall. Yep. And boy, does he unload in that film. It's amazing. That's a great answer. All right. Before I let you go, anything, maybe I forgot to ask you anything you want to talk about. Do you have a a new book coming out or anything? Well, um, really right now, what I'm trying to do is like I said, I'm trying to circle home. So I'm teaching online and I'm doing workshops. So if anybody's interested in training with me, they'd have to contact me for some, for some private lessons essentially. Okay. Um, which I'm just doing through my email, neilripsky at gmail.com. Okay. Real simple. And I'll put links for like your books and everything out there for people to check out and, and hopefully get more, more people checking out your books. I know there's a few on there I want to. So is it one last question then looking at all your books, um, maybe someone who has no experience in Chinese martial arts, is there a first book of yours you'd recommend they check out? Yeah. Good question. If you wanted to see the martial art part, you want to get the secrets of drunken boxing volume one okay, or the new one. I just put out the compendium of drunken boxing because it's actually got five books in it. All okay. five of them are in there. If you wanted to more look at the theoretical, principle-based side of everything, probably Standing on Iron Mountain is the place to start. Okay, yeah, I just saw is, that one. I was going to ask about that. Okay. Basically, what that book is, is like me taking things out of my journal. Like, for instance, you'll notice on my Lulu thing, there's Bagua Journal and a Tai Chi Journal and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's actually my journal. I think I advertised it wrong. Okay. <laughs> but it's actually chunks of my Bagua Journal with spaces for you to make your own notes. But, okay. Um, because I think journaling is the most important thing I ever did in martial arts. And that's how the books all happen. So, yeah, Standing on Iron Mountain is sort of a good entry level, like, this is what's up. This is, you know, when, when Neil's talking about martial arts and self-evolution and changing things, that's that's kind of the, the where all of it sort of starts is with this martial arts combat interrelationships with opponents and things. Okay. it's awesome. I will, I will definitely probably check that one out and probably a few others and hopefully actually find time to read them someday. <laughs> <laughs> with my crazy schedule, Dang. but 
Hey, <laughs> I just, yeah, this has been, this has been a lot of fun. I said, I knew, I, I knew very little about you and, and it's, it's always great to talk to other martial artists and, you know, you're, especially one like you, you're, you're very similar in age to me and kind of a similar background, you know, same type thing with me. As mm-hmm. I, was, I, I was bullied and stuff and, and I, I got into it because of Karate Kid. I mean, I was 10 years old and, and actually similar. I went to the opening night of Karate Kid in June of 1984. And when I was walking mm-hmm. out of the theater, the local Tung Sudo school was handing out free passes. Out, no out, out, out in the lobby awesome. so yeah <laughs> so, yeah that that's what started my martial arts journey was that so that's amazing yeah yeah right on yeah we're brothers that's that simple exactly you know we, we both got to train with mr miyagi a little bit there so yeah exactly you know you, you asked me if there was anything i wanted to mention and there is uh-huh. something actually yeah i think i am doing my best to uh learn how to become a, a life coach an executive coach i kind of feel like Doing martial arts and all of the, the students I've been teaching over the last 40 years and such has given me an ability to kind of help people see themselves for who they are and accept those people so that they can kind of self-evolve. So I've actually been really lucky. I've been working with a mentor of mine, Tai Chi guy from England. And what we've helped, what he's helped me do is we've designed a coaching system based on Miyamoto Musashi's Book of Five Rings. Oh, nice. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's it's five different ways of kind of looking at yourself in different layers so that you can see where you're strong and where you're weak and how to harmonize those relationships. Same thing we do with opponents in martial arts. Mm -hmm. But if anybody's interested in talking to me about things like that, instead of being punched, (laughs) neilripsky at (laughs) gmail.com. Nice. That is very cool. Well, Neil, I I so appreciate your time and this has been so much fun. And and just just to note for you, it looks like if everything stands in, in order for my calendar, this episode should come out June 15th. Huh? Two days after my birthday. Perfect. Well, there you go. Well, happy birthday then. That'll be a good way to celebrate. Thank, so, nice. Thank you very much. But I, I so appreciate it. And this has been a blast chatting with you. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.